If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. If we reforest the country by 40 to 50 million acres between now and mid-century, we could potentially offset 50% of greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. At a time when we need to galvanize collective power to drive systemic change, why is it important for us to go beyond conscious consumerism to also focus on political action? And what can we do besides voting to support environmental policy throughout the year? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To join our Green Dreamer network and support the show, you can head to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron supporting the podcast. For now, to our conversation with Will Hackman, a past political campaigner for several U.S. House and Senate races, a contributing author on environmental policy who's attended four United Nations conferences and who's worked on various legislative issues related to ocean and land conservation, energy, and the environment. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So I think that I first developed a passion for nature and the environment growing up. I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana and Illinois, but then every summer my mom is a teacher and she took my sisters and I to New Hampshire and we spent the summer in New Hampshire hiking and getting out on the water. And it was a great time to really connect with the environment. And then between high school and college, I became a commercial Alaskan fisherman And surprisingly, I really attribute that to opening my eyes about what was happening to the oceans. So I was a commercial salmon fisherman in Alaska for two seasons and then a Bering Sea crab fisherman for a winter season. And I really got a sense of what was happening to the oceans and a sense directly from industry itself. 
And I credit both of those experiences for developing my early interests and then getting into politics, seeing what was happening on environmental policy and sustainability and climate change, I think just continued to grow my interest from there. Mm. I feel like a lot of times people wonder, like, is it more effective to try to do what you can as an individual with your lifestyle choices? Or is it more effective to work on environmental policy to be able to support sustainability? But then at the same time, policy feels like it takes a lot longer to see an actual change happening, which is why people get frustrated about environmental policy and end up focusing on personal lifestyle choices. But what are your thoughts on this based on what you've seen happen or based on what you know of what individuals can do with our lifestyle or consumer choices versus what we can do with policy? Yeah. So the number one thing I always tell people that they can do is to vote. And as we're coming up on the 2020 presidential election, register 10 people to vote or 20 people to vote. That is the most important thing that you can do especially in an election season, we have to have people elected who understand the facts and the science and understand that climate change is one of the biggest threats that human civilization has ever faced. So number one, go out there and vote and make sure other people are voting. After that, it is very important to be sustainable and reduce your carbon footprint as much as you can. I kind of break down environmental policy into a couple different pots. There is the sustainability pot, recycling, going vegan, if, if you think that that is the best choice for you. But a lot of those choices affect pollution. They affect water usage, land usage, which, which are very important things. But then there is the issue of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And there is a lot of overlap between that as well. But from a pure greenhouse gas perspective, there are such large institutional changes that need to occur. And the residential sector is a small percentage of the pie of where greenhouse gases come from. Industry, transportation, aviation, shipping, the energy power sector, obviously, those large-scale institutional changes need to occur for us to be able to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. So again, where do those changes come from? Policy, electing the right people who can create the policies that create the framework that the power sector can use and that the transportation sector can use to make the right choices when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So mm. It's a very complicated answer, I guess, to, to the question. <laughs> yeah, but basically, you know, as we go about our daily lifestyles and consumer choices, of course, we should do what we can as individuals, but it's also important that we not leave out political action because at this point, we need drastic changes at a systemic level, and there are things that we can't personally influence individually that have to come from policy. Yes, absolutely, and... And again, like I do as much as I can in my life to reduce my carbon footprint. I try to offset all of the air travel that I take. I recycle. I use reusable bottles. I try to cut down on any plastic usage. All of those things are extremely important. But I, I want to make sure people understand that even if they are all doing those daily choices in their lives within the residential sector that they're a part of, 
it's not going to be enough. Mm. We need large scale institutional changes at a very high level across all sectors of the economy in order to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. So for you, having worked in environmental policy for quite a bit, what's been your biggest frustration about it that you feel like may have been holding our progress back? Environmental policies are in the United States and environmental policymaking, again, it happens in a wide spectrum of different topics. There are the the pollution controls and the air quality and water quality policies that are passed, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, everything that the EPA deals with. And then there's climate change policy. And the United States does not have a federal climate change policy. We have pollution standards. We have a couple different rulemakings under the Clean Air Act that would address power plants. You know, one of them, the Clean Power Plan that a lot of people have heard of, is now on hold and being rewritten. There are certain efficiency standards and buildings that have been passed. There are transportation, fuel efficiency standards that have been passed. And each of those things have gone a long way to helping the United States cap our greenhouse gas emissions. And and greenhouse gas emissions in the United States has actually been declining for the last 10 years, which is great. They went up a little bit last year. Unfortunately, we're not exactly sure if that's a long-term trend at this point. That may just be a fluke from last year being so warm. But Overall, we have reduced carbon emissions by a pretty significant amount over the last 10 years because of these existing policies. However, all that said, we absolutely need to pass a comprehensive national climate policy in the United States, whether that's a carbon tax, which a lot of people argue it should be, or a cap and trade bill, or a synthesis of all of the clean energy standards than renewable energy portfolio standards that a lot of individual states have passed already. And the frustration that I have is that we haven't passed that national policy yet. There's, it's been so hard to have that conversation. And so there is a real lack of leadership that we are sending as the United States government to the private sector. There's all these individual piecemeal policies, some at the national level, some at the state and local level that are doing great things. But we're now at the point where we need to we need to tie it all together. Mm. And why do you think there has been a lack of leadership on this front? When we talk about remaking the United States economy and shifting industry sectors and affecting hundreds of millions of people and where they're going to live and how they're going to work and how they're going to be taxed. It is, it's the largest transformation of the global economy and of the United States economy that we've ever seen. And it needs to happen in the shortest time frame that any economic transformation like that has ever seen before. I don't think we've ever experienced anything like this before. So it's understandable that it's taken some time, but there has been leadership. I, I would say that there has been leadership over the decades from both sides of the aisle. And I think that we're getting there. The conversation has gotten to a much better point. The tipping point is is now occurring where, where people are starting to really kind of understand what's 
what's happening. And the science has been progressing along the way. And where is the United States currently at in terms of its national policy or lack thereof on climate change in the context of the global community? So the United States signed the Paris Agreement along with every other country in the world. And we are still in the Paris Agreement, just for the record. President Trump gave a speech saying he wanted to pull out of the Paris Agreement. That was it. It was a speech that did not carry any legal authority to it. Technically, under the rules of UN treaties, the United States cannot pull out of the Paris Agreement until I think one day after the 2020 presidential election. (laughs) So under the Paris Agreement, what does that mean for the United States? You know, a lot of people have this idea that the Paris Agreement tells the United States that it needs to do all of these things in order to drastically reduce its carbon emissions. It doesn't. The United States has created our own policy proposal called our nationally determined contribution. And so that is, what are we going to do in this country between now and 2025 to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And so our goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28 percent over 2005 levels, I believe, by the year 2025. So about 20 years to reduce 26 percent. The list of policies that we put in our summary for how we can do that include fuel efficiency standards, building standards, the Energy Security and Modernization Act, the Clean Air Act, some of these other policies that I mentioned previously. So it's really utilizing existing policies to the fullest extent. Part of this conversation that I I think we're going to see in the next few years is whether or not we can hit our Paris Agreement goals without a national carbon tax. And I think it is likely, you know, there's a lot of different initial reports and research that people are starting to put out there about how far we've come already. There have been incredibly helpful policies like the business investment tax credit for solar, which provided a 30% tax credit to the solar industry for installations. That's actually what I wrote my master's thesis on that tax credit and the the wind tax credit, which is the sister tax credit, has enabled this massive growth of wind and solar in the United States because it reduced the cost. Those existing policies need to continue, but I I don't think we're going to get to where we need to be without a national carbon tax. What determines if these things are being enforced and are there consequences to not meeting what we're supposed to meet? So there's no enforcement mechanism uh, that the Paris Agreement puts out there either. There is sort of a public pressure process because each country continues to go to these international climate conferences every year. The next conference is happening this December in Santiago, Chile. If you are the United States or another major industrialized country that's pulled out of those conversations, you will face significant wrath at at these conferences from a from a diplomatic level. So it's more of a social pressure. It is. It is. And, you know, some people initially said that that was the major flaw of the Paris Agreement, that it didn't have an enforcement mechanism. But I think what we've seen in these large international negotiating forums is that peer pressure can go a long way. And there there are constant treaties and relationships being forged between countries all over the world. And if other 
major countries like China or countries in the European Union, or you know, if they decide that they're going to stand up for climate during the their negotiating process and some of these other treaties, then perhaps they will be able to enact a certain amount of of public pressure to get people to do the right thing. The first evaluation will occur in in around 2025. We'll know how countries around the world are doing in meeting their goals. We'll know where we are in a collective effort. And then every five years after that, we're going to see how much closer we get to our goals. And I think that's really important to understand about the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement doesn't get us to where we need to be. But the Paris Agreement has this ingenious, intuitive mechanism built into it called the ratchet mechanism. And every five years, countries have to submit new plans for what they're going to do for that next five-year period. Mm -hmm. So from 2025 to 2030, 2030 to 2035, and on and on. And so year after year after year, we will slowly try to ratchet the curve down from three degrees down to two degrees. And I think we can, I think we can get there. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit. So we've been hearing more and more about the term decarbonizing the economy. And maybe you can allude to your article, the business case for U.S. action on climate change for this. But what exactly does this entail and what would this look like in practice? Thanks. I I wrote a few articles on the business case for U.S. policy action in the United States. And that's just saying, you know, we hear this narrative a lot that business is against doing anything on climate change or that climate change policy would hurt business and and cause us to lose jobs. But the opposite is really true. And there are lots of points that I could talk about. But to your point about decarbonizing, we have something like 20 years before we go over that threshold of carbon emissions that we can put into the atmosphere. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to hit two degrees within 20 years. It just means that That's the threshold at which we have now put enough carbon into the atmosphere where we are very, very likely to hit two degrees at that point. So what most scientists are telling us and what the Paris Agreement says is that we need to create massive decarbonization plans by the middle of this century. The building sector, the transportation sector, heavy industry, power supply, residential The economy is a term for all sectors within our country and and across the world. So when we want to decarbonize the economy, we're talking about moving to 100% renewable energy sources in the power sector, making sure all transportation is coming from electric vehicles and that all of that energy is coming from renewable energy sources, making sure all buildings are carbon neutral with solar panels on top, that type of activity. I want to shift gears again. So I know that you've spent quite some time on ocean conservation as well as policies on that front. What do we need to know in regards to how climate change may be already affecting our ocean's health? There are things not directly related to climate change, like pollution runoff and plastics and big dead zones that are happening on the coasts and overfishing around the world and illegal fishing around the world. And then there's climate change. And I've asked climate scientists what keeps them up at night when it comes to 
the scope of, of climate change. And I've gotten this answer a few times, ocean acidification, all the carbon pollution that we are putting up into the atmosphere falls back down and gets absorbed by the oceans. And when that happens, it, it makes the ocean more acidic and that kills coral reefs around the world. It kills small plant and animal life. 50% of all the oxygen that we breathe on earth comes from the oceans. And a lot of that is generated by these tiny little plants. If ocean acidification throws off the balance of the ocean and kills these plants that are generating oxygen for us, what are we going to do? And even if we stop all of the greenhouse gas emitting sources right now, we still have enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That carbon will be up there in the atmosphere for the next hundred years and will continue to fall down and make the ocean more acidic. So we have essentially locked in a pretty high level of ocean acidification. And we don't yet know what that really is going to look like. We know that coral reefs around the world are dying in massive numbers. I think something like 30 to 50% of, of coral reefs around the world have already died or are dying. Those numbers could get much, much higher in the next 20 or 30 years. You know, a quarter of all marine life need coral reefs in order to survive. And there are a lot of humans who rely on fish as their primary source of protein. Is there anything we as individuals can do to help address ocean acidification? Or is this like what we talked about earlier in the sense that it's not so much individual actions needed for this, it's just action against climate change at a systemic level? I mean, the only thing you can do about ocean acidification is to stop emitting carbon pollution into the atmosphere. And so we need to vote the right people in and we need to pass these massive climate policies and we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as fast as we possibly can. And that will help the oceans. You know, I think everybody should be cognizant of their use of plastics. Uh, we should be cognizant of factory farming and the nitrogen runoff and, and other things that get into our streams and waterways and make their way into bays and create large scale life die off. We should be cognizant of, of sunscreen that we use when we're at the beaches. Traditional sunscreens harm coral reefs, and there are now a lot more choices when it comes to sunscreen that are a little better on coral reefs. If you ever, if you have the opportunity to go snorkeling or go diving on a coral reef, make sure you are very careful about where you place your hands and feet. Be careful not to break any pieces off. So there, there are individual things that that we can do, but the oceans are so large in scale and, and the issues that are affecting them are so large in scale that it really will take institutional and governmental and international changes in order to save them. Well, there's so much to this. And in the area of taking political action so we can go beyond the individual consumer choices we have, what else can we do throughout the year to support environmental policy beyond voting? So that's a, that's a great question. And I, I definitely think that my message is not to sit at home and wait for institutional changes and just go out there and vote and then you've done your job and everything will be okay. I do think it's extremely important for each of us to find things that we can get involved in in the community, to talk to people that we know. You know, the best advocate is the 
community level advocate. You know, you are the best advocate with your family and with your friend group. And, you know, people will trust what you're telling them more than they will trust what they're hearing on TV, especially if they have skepticism with some of the things that they're hearing. So there are so many great organizations to get involved in. There's Citizens Climate Lobby, which has chapters all over the country and has been building this movement for passing some sort of carbon tax, fee and dividend. There's the Climate Reality Project, which is Al Gore's organization. You know, Al Gore continues to be very active in this space. I actually just got back from Atlanta. I was down there just this last weekend at the Climate Reality Project Leadership Corps meeting in Atlanta. And I had a a really interesting time. I learned so much in Atlanta at this, this conference about environmental justice and social justice. Yeah, I've been pretty laser focused on the business community and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and what's happening on the policy level that I hadn't really thought much about environmental justice and social justice. But the major theme of this conference that I just got back from was environmental justice and how we can't move forward with some of these policies unless we address environmental and social justice concerns. Definitely. We've also been talking a lot more and hearing from leaders of the environmental justice movement recently on Green Dreamer. So our listener can definitely check out those episodes as well and continue to follow your work so that they can learn more from you. As we're wrapping up, I know you recently wrote something about reforestation and its role in climate change. So real quickly, can you share with us the main message you want to get across with that? And then we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes so our listener can go check it out further. You know, some of your listeners may think that this is too hard. We're, we're, we're probably going to blow past two degrees Celsius. You know, what, what do we need to do after that? And there's a lot of conversations that are happening now about geoengineering, about dumping massive quantities of salt into the oceans to, ma- to make it less acidic or spraying some sort of component into the atmosphere that will reflect sunlight and will bring temperatures down a little bit. This may need to happen at some point in the future, but we need so much more research on what the large-scale environmental and ecological consequences might be of messing around with our ecosystem in that way. What we do know is that we have a negative carbon technology right now that we know works very well to remove carbon from the atmosphere, and that's trees. So it it may sound overly simple, but if we plant a lot of trees, we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Late in the Obama administration, there was this policy platform called the United States Mid-Century Strategy for Deep Decarbonization. It was our plan for how we were going to get to 80 to 100% decarbonized in the United States by mid-century. We submitted that plan to the United Nations. That's what the Paris Agreement called for. We're complying with, with that call in the Paris Agreement. And it's a really interesting plan, and there's a lot of different components to it. But I wrote this article focusing on one component of the plan, which is reforestation efforts. And essentially, you know, the thesis is if we reforest the country by 40 to 50 million acres between now and mid-century, we could potentially offset 50% 
of greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050. That's also seeing increases in renewable energy and decreases in carbon from other sources. But that's a huge amount of carbon dioxide that we can pull out of the atmosphere just by planting trees. And there's ways to do it. If we look at federal land, really creative agriculture practices, if we work with state and local landowners, private landowners, tribal entities across the United States, and we create these innovative new farming practices and energy practices out West. It's a long article, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to share the, the link with you when it's finally published. But we can do it. We have enough acreage out there in order to do it. And there are some countries, you know, th these are very serious conversations that are happening at the international level about reforestation uh, around the world. And every country is trying to figure out how they can promote that. China recently, I think, mobilized their, their army to plant trees all over China, uh, especially near Beijing and other cities that are seeing severe air quality issues. And I had a friend who sent me a video driving down the highway near Beijing where there was just an endless line along the highway of people planting trees. And so it's this amazing concept of, of helping out our environment and offsetting the greenhouse gas emissions that we ultimately can't reduce through other means. You know, if we need to buy ourselves time to transition the energy sector and the transportation sector and the building sector, we, we need time to do that. And planting a lot of trees can give us that time. And in addition to carbon sequestration, I mean, trees are beautiful. They provide habitat for wildlife. They improve air quality. So there are a lot of benefits beyond the carbon sequestration piece as well. So we're very excited about that and look forward to learning more about this. But for now, what is next for you and where can we follow you online? Feel free to follow me on Instagram, hackman.will or on LinkedIn, you know, Will Hackman on LinkedIn. I'm an open connector and I'm always happy to connect with people. I'm in the DC area and I'm doing tons of things, you know, whenever there's a big conference that comes up, you know, I'm always happy to chat with people. This podcast wouldn't be here without you, Green Dreamer. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. We've officially launched our Green Dreamer network for our listener patrons supporting the show. And we also extended open invitations for all of our past guests to join as well. On the inside, we're sharing positive sustainability news, green professional opportunities, thoughts and ideas on topics discussed on the show and beyond, and more. It's so easy to feel like we're alone in this journey or to feel stuck and discouraged. So I hope that it'll be a safe and inclusive space where you can connect with other inspiring green dreamers with aligning interests and passions from around the world. To join us, you can just head to greendreamer.com support. I hope to see you on the inside. And for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow? I try to listen to the daily podcast from New York Times every day. PBS NewsHour. I love PBS, you know, Frontline. PBS just tells you everything you need to know. Information is, is power. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I think about the future that we could have if we 
fully decarbonize the world's economy. You know, what what is what does that future really look like? It's green spaces in cities. It's clean air and clean water and sustainable food practices and public transportation that meets the needs of all citizens and and equity across racial lines and economic lines so that everyone in society has the same access that everyone else has when it comes to a clean environment. That is a way in which human civilization has never lived up until now. We have never lived sustainably. We don't know what that version of of civilization looks like, but to me it 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 looks like a, a version of of utopia. I think it's going to be a great future if we can get there and I think we can get there. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. What are you working on right now for your health? I just registered for two triathlons actually. Uh, I've never run a triathlon before. I kind of hate running. <laughs> I'm not a great swimmer. <laughs> so I, I think I've got an uphill battle. But I, uh, I joined the DC Triathlon Club, and we'll see how it goes. My first one is in May. Well, so, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. What are you working on right now to live more sustainably? I think my carbon footprint is fairly low. I live in an apartment. I have roommates. I always take Uber pool, if not bike. I have three bikes. I love to bike around the city. You know, DC is a great biking city. So just be cognizant of your carbon footprint. There are a number of different places that you can do carbon offsets. If you fly a lot, you know, they don't cost that much just to donate a few dollars here and there to offset your air travel. I do really think that is important and it just makes you more aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. What makes you most hopeful about our planet at the moment? There is a lot of momentum with younger generations. You know, I'm a millennial, but even generations younger than me now are fired up about doing things on sustainability, on environmental justice, on climate change, on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I think we are at the tipping point, especially with younger generations, of where we need to be to make sure we go the right direction. And we've seen the Green New Deal and a number of different proposals that have come out from a few different sources and presidential hopefuls like Jay Inslee and, and, and others who are talking about this conversation. And that's filtering to Capitol Hill. We are having a conversation on Capitol Hill now about climate change that we couldn't have in previous years. So I'm hopeful that this this momentum will continue to build and will take us the right direction. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> you know, keep learning. These topics are so broad and wide ranging and the science keeps updating. The science is not changing, but it is updating and we're we're getting a better and better sense of what's exactly happening to different regions around the world and so just keep learning. You know, approach this topic not from a point of frustration or you know, approach it from a perspective of wanting to learn and continuing to have conversations with people and branching out and I, I think that's the, the best thing that you can do is, is just have a lifelong approach to learning. Let's continue to be lifelong learners. 
Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in, and a huge thank you to our new patrons Michelle McDowell and Aaron of My Green Closet, a past honored guest you can listen to way back on episode 23. You too can become a patron and join Green Dreamer Network at greendreamer.com slash support. As always, you can find our show notes at greendreamer.com slash 127 for episode 127. Reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, Hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.